Welcome to Clearly KC, a podcast produced by the National Keratoconus Foundation, featuring information about life with keratoconus. I am your host, Dr. Melissa Barnett. Today's episode is about the age when keratoconus is diagnosed and its prognostic value. I am honored to introduce you to my friend and colleague, Dr. Marguerite McDonald, who really needs no introduction at all. Dr. McDonald is a clinical professor of ophthalmology at NYU Medical Center, clinical professor of ophthalmology at Tulane University Health Sciences Center, and is a cataract refractive corneal surgeon at OCLI Vision on Long Island. Dr. McDonald is a global legend who performed the world's first laser vision correction procedure, a PRK, and has over 1,800 publications. She was the first female president of ASCRS and ISRS. I am very proud to announce that Dr. McDonald was recently inducted into the ASCRS Ophthalmology Hall of Fame. Welcome, Dr. McDonald. Oh, thank you. Melissa, it's an honor and pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much. So let's talk about keratoconus. What age is keratoconus typically diagnosed? I can tell you in my patient population, there seems to be two groups. There's the group that presents young, usually below age 40, and then almost every week, we find a patient in their 60s or 70s who's coming in for cataract surgery, and we diagnose keratoconus, and they never knew they had it. So the first group usually has a much more aggressive case. It presents early, causes vision troubles. They get diagnosed before age 40, almost always. The other group, I say to them, you have a quote-unquote slow pokey case <laughs> of keratoconus, you're already cross-linked by uh, father time, and it really won't have any much of an impact at all on your cataract surgery. It has uh, an impact in what intraocular lens I picked for you, but you know, you're going to do just fine after your cataract surgery, and this really has no impact at all. Those are the two groups, and 40 is an artificial dividing line. Sometimes you find people who are diagnosed with an aggressive case after age 40, and sometimes you diagnose people with a very slow case that's almost totally stable when they're in their 20s or 30s. But those are very unusual situations. Age 40 is the dividing line in my practice. How about well, yours, Melissa? I think it's actually quite similar, and I had a patient recently who actually had cataract surgery and was not diagnosed with keratoconus, who I diagnosed after cataract surgery when the visual outcome was not as good as expected, which was so interesting. And he was in his 70s. And so it kind of blew my mind. Really, no one has ever looked at your cornea. So what technologies do you use in your practice to diagnose keratoconus? of course, the manifest refraction is important. You often, not always, but very often see a higher than normal amount of astigmatism. I use the Petacam, very fond of it. Uh, it gives you a ton of information, the corneal thickness, which is less than the national average for the vast majority of keratoconus patients. 
And you often see the classic keratoconic topography picture with the apex of the cone being steeper than the apex of a normal patient. There's also a very characteristic pattern, and there is software to help doctors make the diagnosis as well. Artificial intelligence that has been trained on millions of topography maps. Those were uh, first developed by Dr. Steve Kleiss. That is correct. And imaging the posterior cornea is really helpful also with the pentacam. I always feel like it's cheating a little bit (laughs) because it gives us such great information. I've never asked you this question before. Do you Um, use microscopy to diagnose keratoconus? I don't usually, but it's interesting when you do the dilated fundus exam and you're looking with a 20 diopter lens, uh, the cone jumps out at you. And in a way, that's very much like retinoscopy. So that's a really good tip. So another question, and you've answered this already, but in your practice, do younger patients, and I guess younger, what I'm referring to here are those in maybe their teens or 20s with keratoconus tend to progress more quickly than those patients who are maybe in their 40s or 60s? A hundred percent. Uh, The youngest patient I've ever diagnosed with keratoconus was an eight-year-old who already had tremendous corneal thinning and a steep apex and a tremendous amount of astigmatism. And you have to take action quickly for the young ones who are getting worse. Once you make the diagnosis, you really should consider cross-linking. And that is right on. And so in your practice... Is the process pretty quick after you make the diagnosis for a patient to be cross-linked, or does it take some time? After we make the diagnosis, for the young ones, we try to get them cross-linked as quickly as we can. There have been occasional instances where a 16-year-old's mother will say, oh, we're going to wait for summer vacation, which is 10 months away. And I say, you know what? It might be too late by then. Your child is changing so quickly, the cornea might get too thin. We do meet people, sadly, every week who are too far gone. And and now the only thing we can do is keep them in glasses or contacts till they have a full thickness corneal transplant. So we really don't want that to happen. The older they are, the more time you can allow them to take between the diagnosis and the treatment. But the young ones, you have to do it very quickly. I definitely agree. In our population, too, sometimes a patient will go off to college and then they may or may not come back. And then the timing is iffy. So that's really good advice to crosslink as soon as possible. And crosslinking has become much more humane. People don't have the significant post op pain that would go on for days and days. The technique has improved. And we have a perioperative regimen where they're really very comfortable very quickly, and the vision comes back very quickly. That's correct. And do you see many complications in your practice associated with cross-linking? Actually, no. Uh, The only memorable complication, which had a happy ending, but in the very beginning days of cross-linking, I had a medical student. We cross-linked using the classic technique, making a large epithelial defect. And he was healthy and young, and he just wouldn't 
heal his epithelial defect. Back then, we didn't have the things we have now and amniotic membranes, etc. He did finally heal. Uh, took two and a half to three weeks to heal. Wow. But he did heal, and he had a clear cornea, and that's many years ago, and I saw him just the other day, and he's doing great. But uh, we just don't have that anymore. We make the world's tiniest epithelial defect. Tiny, tiny. And it heals like overnight. And I tell the patients the sharpest instrument we're going to use for this procedure is a wet Q-tip, <laughs> which is the truth. We anesthetize the eye, of course. Prep the cornea with a wet Q-tip just to rough up the epithelium a little so the riboflavin drops that we use will penetrate. And the tiniest, tiniest little epithelial defect at the apex of the cone. And that ensures proper penetration of the riboflavin. That's excellent. And would you like to speak on future advancements in cross-linking? Well, there are all sorts of um, advancements coming down the road that might make it even less invasive. Uh, and so they are not FDA approved yet. But uh, cross-linking, I, I would say, has changed so dramatically for the better over the last 15 years, and it will get only better going forward. But I tell the average patient, you're going to be down by down, maybe sitting at home playing video games, but, but you're going to be down a day or two. That's it. Back to work. Exactly. There are so many advancements in cross-linking, and we see very few complications as well. And I'm very excited about all the future advancements that are coming, the not-so-distant future, that are available elsewhere and hopefully soon to come to this country as well. Yes. So we know that allergies and atopy are really associated with eye rubbing, and we don't want our patients to rub their eyes, those who have keratoconus. What strategies do you use to avoid eye rubbing? So I tell them that uh, most of 100% of keratoconus patients have ocular allergies, and they are tempted to rub. And I said, there have even been videos made. Do they rub with the palm of their hands? Do they rub with their knuckles? This has been studied exhaustively. But the one thing we know for sure, eye rubbing can make keratoconus worse. And there are some papers that say you can give yourself keratoconus by eye rubbing. Perhaps those people are genetically predisposed, but we know you can actually give yourself keratoconus. So I say if you're tempted to rub, take out your anti-allergy drop. Everybody with keratoconus should have allergy drops. So, you know, you stop the urge to rub. Stop the urge to rub. There are over-the-counter ones that are good. There are prescription ones that are good. There are some great generics that are good. But as your eyes start to come closer to your face to rub, stop, reach into your pocket or your purse, and take out that allergy drop. That is great advice. And I think we really need to recommend or prescribe these drops more than we're doing. And I love how you say everyone with keratoconus should have anti-allergy drops. And that's something that we need to share with everyone, the importance of having these drops. And there are some great over-the-counter ones, I agree. What if there's a family history of keratoconus? What advice do you have for people with a family history? Their family members should be screened, 100%. Now, just because your dad has keratoconus doesn't mean you are going to 
But if you look at a family tree, there are cases all over the place, usually. And of course, there's always that first person in the family who gets it. But it does cluster in families for sure. Absolutely. And the earlier it's caught, the better. The better it can be dealt with, the better the prognosis. That's exactly right on. So we do have a question from a patient. And if there are any questions that you'd like us to cover on the Clearly KC podcast, please contact the National Keratoconus Foundation. And the question is, since keratoconus is progressive, will it develop into complete blindness? And at what stage does it typically stabilize? A complete blindness, no light perception, it never does that. Keratoconus can be so advanced that uh, the apex of the cone can tear and uh, causes flattening of the cornea. So amazingly, uh, people often see better after this uh, event occurs. So they get a flatter cornea. It's easier to wear a contact lens or even see with glasses. Uh, but you never go to no light perception. That absolutely does not happen with keratoconus. And what was the second half of the question, Melissa? Sure. Fortunately, that does not happen. At what stage does keratoconus typically stabilize? So with the young aggressive cases, they don't stabilize. In the old days, they'd go right on to need cornea transplants. Uh, the older people that I mentioned who come in and we pick it up, keratoconus is diagnosed just as part of their cataract workup. They're fine. Lights, ambient lights. As they walk around and the decades roll by, cross-links the patient's cornea. Old people are already cross-linked just by being on planet Earth for a few decades. And do you tell them that they're old? No. I say, this is a gift from Father Time. Your corneas have been cross-linked. <laughs> I love it. It's true. I like Father Time. That's great. So switching gears a little bit, what do you think about genetic testing? I'm a huge fan. I can't wait to do it in the state of New York. We are the only state that doesn't have the ability yet to do genetic testing. I have quite a long list of people I would like to genetically test. I think that information is very helpful, and I know you're a fan. Isn't that true, Melissa? It is. It's really helpful to have the risk score for keratoconus to have that whole history and specific genes are actually documented so we can tell if a whole family is tested, if it's the same gene, if it's multiple genes, if there's some that are similar, some that are different. But it can really help to know if we're going to send a patient immediately for cross-linking, if we're going to watch and monitor the patient a little bit more closely. And it's just another tool in the toolbox that we have for the diagnosis and management of keratoconus. 100% agree. So soon in New York, hopefully. Yes. So the last question is, what are one to two tips about keratoconus that you'd recommend for all patients and practitioners? I would say after crosslinking, and we have studied the timing of this, after crosslinking, one month after, they should be fit with a gas perma lens. Why? Most of them will see much better, but also it's like putting a cast on a broken leg. It helps hold that cornea in a nice round shape while they heal. So I tell them that before the cross-linking, and we've studied it at two weeks, at eight weeks, but 
the magic is somewhere around one month post-op. They're comfortable. It won't hurt to be fit with the contact lens, but they're still early enough post-op that you can get a tremendous amount of corneal reshaping just by wearing a spherical lens. The analogy I use is that if you break your leg and you get a cast right away, that's going to make your leg nice and straight. If you break your leg and you get a cast three years later, that cast is not going to help you too much. So the timing here is critical, and one month is a perfect time, and we published that a few years ago. That's right on. And something that we have done in our practice as well is fit a patient prior to cross-linking with, say, a scleral lens and then have them wear that and teach them how to put it on, take it off, et cetera, and then have them wear the scleral lens after cross-linking so they already have the lens at that time. And yes, we know that the cornea changes after cross-linking, but the lens can still be used and modified later. Absolutely. And that's the second point that I tell them that your cornea is going to slowly improve in shape. So every few months, you have to go back to your contact lens fitter and make sure that the lens doesn't have to be modified. And I tell them the goal of cross-linking is just one thing, which is to stop them from going on to need a cornea transplant. But the happy side effect is that almost everybody gets a flatter, rounder cornea. And it's easier to wear contacts and they have a less crazy glasses prescription. And, you know, virtually everybody gets those uh, significant positive side effects. That is right on. So that importance of early diagnosis and treatment. Thank you so much for joining us on the Clearly KC podcast. Please listen to the Clearly KC podcast on Podbean or your favorite podcast app to subscribe and get future episodes. For now, I'm Melissa Barnett, and please join us next time on Clearly KC. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Barnett.